So as Mark said, the Bible reading starts at Exodus chapter 11. If you have a church Bible, that's on page 102. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbours for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favourably disposed toward the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, This is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go! you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb... They must share one with their nearest neighbour, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they will eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with the head, legs and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. And this is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. 
This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days, you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through to the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses. And anyone, whether foreigner or native-born, who eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. He will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them. It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. Let's, uh, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, this is holy ground where we're standing and we are confronted with the moment of redemption, which is terrible but wonderful all at the same time. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that you'd give us ears to hear as we go through the story again. Um, please impress on us um, the preciousness of your redemption. Amen. Well, I want to begin by asking how your week was. Uh, was it a good week? Praise God. Was it a terrible week? Praise God. Why would I say that? Well, because um, so often we travel through life 
and we, uh, we take things for granted, don't we? We're too busy to, to notice the value of life itself and then something happens, something bad, something will happen as an interruption to make us sit up and reevaluate and take stock. Um, if you've got little ones, you put your child to sleep at night and there's an interruption, 3 a.m., burning fever, can't be brought down, you're sitting in emergency <laughs> at the Women's and Children's Hospital and you're confident that things will be okay. But just for a moment, you know, the thought enters your head uh, as you're sleep deprived there and sitting there and you're holding your precious one. What would happen if things weren't okay, if somehow this developed badly and, and they didn't pull through? And just for a moment, you, you realize how precious this life is and you, you hold them tight and you smell their hair and you kiss them and you, they're precious to you. Um, maybe it's uh, you get a Facebook post just out of the blue. Someone you went to high school has died. It just happens. Boom. Uh, I got an announcement kind of like that. It wasn't a death, but this week, um, someone I went to, well, I knew from primary school, uh, two years younger than me, used to be um, ride his BMX around with my younger brother, Carl, um, in ministry in Sydney, but massively fit. You know, you know Sydney Tower. Yeah, there's a race every year, a running race, up that. He won. So fit, right? <laughs> and um, he was out riding his bike, triathlete guy, and he had a heart attack. So he's the first one of my peers who's had a heart attack. Whoa, Carl, super fit. He had a heart attack. He's okay. He'll be on blood thinners for the rest of his life. But it makes you stop and take stock and realize how precious life is and how terrible it would be if that was taken from you. Most of the times we forget this and we chug, th chug along through life normally and then something interrupts our lives and makes us wake up. And that is exactly what these chapters in Exodus do for us. Because it's very easy, you see, to forget the value of human life and it's easy for people who believe in Jesus to forget the value of eternal life that we have through faith in Christ and kind of as a jolt to our spiritual lethargy, these chapters, well, they, they enable us to see how terrible it is to be under God's judgment and how precious it is to be one of his redeemed people. So in these chapters, finally, we come to the moment of redemption. You know, we've been looking at Exodus, we've been hearing the stories. Last week we covered uh, nine of the plagues, but, but here is the 10th, and the Passover, and the flight from Egypt. Now with the 10th plague, I know we've covered one to nine, but here's what's unique about this one. The first nine plagues point to redemption from slavery in Egypt, but this last plague, speaks particularly to us because it points to redemption not just from slavery but from death because it's those who are marked out by the blood who are spared certain death. Death, of course, is part of our life. It's a weird sentence. It's been a curse to us since Adam and Eve first sinned. We are affected by it, it will confront everyone. This plague speaks to us about redemption from death. God is speaking to us through this. 
if we're afraid of facing death alone, God is speaking to us of the way out. And if we're not afraid because we have been marked with Jesus' blood and we have all that assurance that there is no judgment, God is reminding us of what we've escaped from. And it's really big. So this is massive. You've got the plague, the Passover, the flight from Egypt. They all remind us of something terrible but wonderful. The terror of facing God's judgment, the sweet relief of being redeemed when others aren't. And we forget it so easily, don't we? Human beings forget it. Think about this. This group of people, within three short months of them leaving Egypt, they have forgotten what God has done for them, and then 3,000 of them die in their own plague, and then they, that whole generation perishes in the wilderness. We are so forgetful. Well, God forbid that that should happen to us. This is why it's right to listen again and remember. Paul the Apostle tells us to consider, therefore, the kindness and the sternness of God. We like to consider God's kindness, not so much God's sternness, but that is our task today, to consider God's kindness to his redeemed people when they first become redeemed, and then God's sternness towards the Egyptians as they face what each of us would face if it were not for God's kindness. So we pick up the story in chapter 11 of the book of Exodus. Of course, by this stage, nine plagues have been inflicted on Egypt, nine devastating plagues. So the economy, the food supply, the national pride of this people, their confidence in their gods, it's all smashed under the mighty arm of God. And yet, such is the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, it cannot be softened, it has to be broken. And it happens. His heart's so hard that throughout the narrative, six, seven, eight, nine times, he has refused to let the people go. At the end of chapter 10, Pharaoh tells Moses, get out of my sight, make sure you don't appear before me again. The day you see my face again is the day you will die. Just as you say, says Moses. Tension's mounting. But the turning point is coming, and we know which way it'll turn. Verse one of chapter 11, the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague, one more, on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And after that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. The plague, this last plague, will go against the Egyptians and it will go for the Israelites. The Israelites will plunder the Egyptians. The moment will be simultaneously awful and yet wonderful, depending on whose side you're on. Moses said, this is what's going to happen about midnight the Lord will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who's at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there ever has been or ever will be again. Awful, but wonderful. All these officials of yours will come to me bowing down before me saying, go, you and all the people who follow you and after that I will leave. It's hard not to read that without a lump in your throat. And we think, did Moses say this to Pharaoh with a tear in his eye? No. In verse eight, he left Pharaoh hot with anger. 
Now, is that because Moses has a particular anger problem? Well, let me ask, if you have kids, or imagine you have kids, how would you feel if your child's being deliberately excluded and left out by other children, um, intentionally ridiculed and made fun of at their most vulnerable and sensitive point? I had a, when one of our daughters was four years old and she was wearing glasses, I remember her being made fun of because she wears glasses again and again. If you want a point score, make sure you don't do that at the expense of my child. You know. Okay, let's up it. How do you feel if your, your child responds in tears because they've been mistreated and suffered abuse of some form? How do you feel if you watch from the school gate as a bigger child sort of gets their arm and twists it up behind their back and then they're crying and they're falling down on their knees and, and you go and confront that child and they laugh at you and then you hear later on that they've done it again and again and again because it provokes a reaction. How do you feel about that? Hot with anger? You bet. This is like Moses here. Pharaoh is not the innocent victim in all of this. And neither were the people of Egypt. They were the ones who'd thrown the Israelite babies into the Nile River. It wasn't the Egyptian soldiers. It was the populace who did it. And this new Pharaoh has continued the same policy of persecution and oppression that the old Pharaoh had. And he made the Israelites cry out in suffering. And then, of course, for nine plagues, you know, nine chances to turn, he's just played games uh, with the Lord, he's, he's had, had sport with him. Moses is hot with anger. And here is a window into what God feels back in chapter seven, verse one, the Lord had said to Moses, he had made lo Moses like God to Pharaoh. And so in Moses' hot anger, we feel the anger of what the Lord himself is feeling in Moses' words. Read my lips, Pharaoh. You set yourself up against the Lord, the God of the universe, you have... And, and you have mistreated my son. You have scorned the plagues of judgment. And, but I want you to know this, that this last plague, this last plague is going to break even you, the mighty Pharaoh of Egypt. God had said it before, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. So this judgment, though awful, it wasn't just a last resort by God, it's the moment the narrative has been building towards and this, the worst of plagues, comes and is entirely fitting. Pharaoh drowned the Hebrew sons in the Nile, now it's the sons of Egypt who will perish. Though awful, the judgment fits. And the judgment is indiscriminate. Moses tells Pharaoh, every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her hand mill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. You see, social standing, which discriminates in Egypt between Pharaoh and everyone else, that's gonna count for nothing. On those on whom it falls, God's judgment will be indiscriminate on those on whom it falls because there are people on whom it won't fall. And in that sense, the judgment is, it does discriminate, doesn't it? Moses continues, but there will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there ever has been or will be again. But among the Israelites, 
Not a dog will even bark at any man or an animal. God's judgment, when it falls, will discriminate. And this is the sting for Pharaoh and the cause for joy for Moses. Because God told Moses at that moment, then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. God reminds us in the last verses of chapter 11 that all of this was as he had foretold. He is the sovereign Lord. He's over this. He hardened Pharaoh's heart so that his wonders would be multiplied in Egypt. At which point we might be tempted to think that God is being unfair, sort of using Pharaoh as a puppet for his own, for the Lord's own glory. Remember back to last week, it might have been God who hardened Pharaoh's heart, but it was also Pharaoh who hardened his own heart. And the passage presents both. It's 100% God and 100% Pharaoh, meaning that Pharaoh doesn't get what he doesn't deserve. He gets what he deserves, and yet this chapter, like last week's chapter, accents the 100% God side of things. Here's the Lord totally in control about to bring judgment on Egypt. This presents a challenging point of view. God is in control and yet when the next plague comes, awful though it will be, it will be a wonder. So what happens? Chapter 11 predicts the 10th plague, the final confrontation. Moses leaves hot with anger. Where's the fulfillment? Well, at this point now, the narrative pauses. Pauses, leaves us in suspense. What's going on here? You know, we have to wait until chapter 12, verse 29, before the story picks up again and the news, with the news of the plague arriving and Israel finally leaving Egypt. In fact, if you looked at the end of chapter 11 and then in your Bible, just with one eyeball there and one eyeball on chapter 12, verse 29. It's as if the story could have flowed directly on and instead it's, it's like there's been a large chunk of material inserted there. Was there a large chunk of material inserted there? No. God deliberately pauses the narrative at the high point of tension because he wants us to tell, about, tell us about a, a meal. Why? Okay, why divert our attention from Moses' confrontation with Pharaoh in the palace, the epic grandeur of seeing two million people on the move? Why change the scene from all of that, the grand, to something very, well, quaint? The Israelite home. The setting for normal Israelite men and women, parents and children. What? Why zoom in there? Well, to focus on what this judgment on the Egyptians will mean for God's people. Um, redemption is a massive moment of judgment. It always comes at a moment of judgment. Think of the cross. Well, here this narrative pauses so that God's redeemed people will see what redemption through judgment means for them, for ourselves. This is redemption in perspective. God says in verse one of chapter 12, what's, happened, what's about to happen is so significant, you are now to set your calendars from this date. This is the defining moment for the people of God. This is the moment where the Hebrew people become the nation of Israel. This is the moment they become redeemed. How so? Well, God gives instructions about the need for every household that night to hold a Passover meal. 
and to bake unleavened bread. And then every year from then on to celebrate the Passover and the feast of the unleavened bread in order for them to remember what they have been saved from. He tells them to eat this special meal. He tells them from every year now on to do it again so they can remember the events of that night. What sort of meal is it? Is it a, a happy meal? Not at McDonald's, but you know, like a birthday celebration, a wedding sort of meal? No. It's a very solemn meal. A lamb is to be chosen four days in advance. It must be a one-year-old male without defect. Jesus will remember it's the lamb of God. A male without defect. The lamb must be slaughtered at twilight on the 14th day of the month, the very day, in fact, when Jesus was slaughtered in Jerusalem. The blood of the lamb is to be taken and smeared on the sides and tops of the door frames. Each household is to identify with the blood of this slain lamb. But actually, not also the blood, not only the blood, but also the body of the lamb they identify with. The lamb is to be eaten by every member of the household, parents and children, in this Passover meal, this last supper that the Israelites had while they were in Egypt. 1,800 years later, Jesus would have his Passover meal, his last supper, in fact, before his death. And there tell his disciples to eat in remembrance of his body broken for them, to drink in remembrance of his blood poured out for them. It's intriguing in the New Testament that in the narration of that moment with Jesus, there's no mention of the lamb because he's it. He is the lamb. Along with the lamb, bitter herbs, some sort of wild lettuce was to be eaten, symbolizing and reminding the Israelites of their bitterness in slavery that they're about to emerge from. The whole of the lamb was to be eaten or burnt. Why? You know, in later, in later sacrifices, uh, the priest was allowed a portion of the sacrifice for his own food. But here, the whole lamb was to be eaten. Why? Well, here there is no priest. And we remember, of course, when Jesus died, there was no additional priest offering up that sacrifice. He was the sacrifice and the priest simultaneously. Well, this meal was to be eaten not slowly, but in haste. No time for breaking bread, which will slowly rise. Your bread must be unleavened. You are to eat with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You've got to be ready to run. Eat it in haste, God told Moses. It's the Lord's Passover. Well, these instructions were to be given to every Israelite household. Why? Chapter 12, verse 26, look. Here's the application. Later, when your son Jedediah comes up to you and asks, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it's so you can go, yeah, yeah, my God's bigger than your God. No. It's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Two points. He passed over our homes and he struck down the Egyptians. We were spared, others were not. This meal 
drives home appreciation of what it means to be redeemed. That by God's grace, through this blood, we are spared when others are not. Verse 29, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials got up during the night and there was a loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. Now Pharaoh's who's... <laughs> heart had been so hardened it can't be softened but only broken. Finally it's broken. In the middle of the night Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go and worship the Lord as you've requested and bless me too. He does understand, doesn't he? And so up they get and they plunder the Egyptians. But what did it mean for the Israelites that now they were redeemed? Did it just mean they could splash out with their new riches, um, that they could just, you know, make fun of the Egyptian slave drivers? No, no, no. The Passover meal, the Passover teaches them. And as it's celebrated year after year later on, it reminds them that this is what it means, that they, by the grace of God, were spared but the Egyptians were not. We can only imagine the horror of the wailing in Egypt that night. Deserved, but awful nonetheless. The Israelites, by the grace of God, were spared. What does the Passover tell us about what it means to be the redeemed people of God? Well, it tells us that we know for certain that others will suffer an awful judgment, and it will be awful, as Jesus himself spoke of often. But it tells us that if we have been passed over by the sheer grace and mercy of God, those marked out with the blood of the Lamb, we have been spared, whereas others haven't been. It's a solemn thought, but do you see, there's a deep, deep privilege to be counted within God's redeemed people because not everyone gets that. It's not because we deserve it more than anyone else. On the contrary, our inclusion, if we are included, is entirely because of the provision of this blood. It's entirely due to the mercy of the Lord. And so we must never make light of the Lord's mercy by fooling ourselves into thinking that somehow we'd we're more deserving to be redeemed. I remember, I think I've told you, before I became a Christian in junior high school, uh, that I thought that God would do pretty well to have me on his side because I could do so much for him. What unbelievable, unbelievable blindness and arrogance. It's, it's lucky the Lord didn't zot me on the spot when you think about it, <laughs> as if he needed me. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Um, but I didn't understand God's mercy, you see. We must never think like that. Paul in Romans 11 essentially says, do not be arrogant, but be afraid. You Gentiles, 
You're only included because of God's grace. You've swapped position with the Israelites. Now because of their unbelief, it's their, they who've been broken off and you Gentiles have been grafted in. Don't be arrogant about that. Consider therefore the kindness and the sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you provided that you continue in that kindness. We are not to make light of the Lord's mercy by pretending that we deserve it. Neither must we make light of the Lord's mercy by taking him to task, by saying it's unfair he doesn't redeem everyone. If I was God, I would do that. That is another strike me down sort of statement. It assumes far, far too much of ourselves and far too little of God, far too little of his goodness and mercy in redeeming those who don't deserve it. We must never think like that. It goes against the understanding the Passover gives us. That to be one of God's redeemed people is a tremendous privilege. You are spared when not everyone is. God's mercy, you see, is something to be, therefore be rejoiced in. It's something to hold on to as something precious, to be savoured, uh, to hold dear, rather than something to be tritely disregarded with, an, with a thought of judgmentalism. When the Israelites were told the meaning of the Passover, they bowed down and they worshipped. Do we? We should. So you see what each of us must do. Two things. The first is to make sure that you're one of God's redeemed people. We have to make sure that we're marked out with the blood of the lamb. Now that phrase, have you been washed in the blood of the lamb, marked out with the blood of the lamb, it's a bit, it's regarded as a bit silly, isn't it? But no, you can't regard it as silly. That's the important thing. Have you consciously said, Lord, I accept Jesus' death for me because without him I have no hope? Have you, you yourself said, Lord, I cling to Jesus' death, to his blood, because with him I am completely safe? Each of us has to do it. There's a day of judgment coming when once again eternal judgment He's on the cards. We can be marked in the blood of Christ. John the Baptist, he saw Jesus and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Passover Lamb. John the Baptist is calling out to us. He's saying, have you seen him? Look, look at him. Put your eyes upon him. Look at him. It's his blood. He's the Lamb. He's the one Lamb, the one sacrifice to take away all the sin, the sin of the world. Have you seen him? Have you said yes? His blood, I, it has to be marked my life. Make sure you're marked out with his blood. And lastly, from the Passover meal, the application is to keep recounting, keep retelling, again and again and again. The Passover meal was given to the Israelites so that this story could be woven into the fabric uh, the ebb and flow of their year, fabric of their lives for the generations beyond this moment. Every, every year it was to be remembered 
Every year the story was to be told, the point being they need to keep recounting, keep retelling over and over again. Same too with us who live this side of the cross. It's interesting how in Jesus' Passover, the Last Supper, he gave instructions for his disciples to celebrate this symbolic meal and to do it as often as you meet in remembrance of me. The breaking of the bread, the drinking of the cup, to remember him, the new covenant brought about through his blood, through his death on the cross. We celebrated this last week. Every month we celebrate this. We remember again. I made a mistake last week, I've realised. In giving instructions for communion at the 9am service, I said, parents, if you're here and you're sure that your children understand uh, this, then they are welcome to participate. It's your call. That was a mistake. Because what's intriguing in the Passover instructions here is that it didn't matter if the Israelite kids didn't understand everything that went on with the Passover. In fact, it was assumed they wouldn't understand. It was assumed that they would ask questions. What does this mean? And then that would give an opportunity for the story to be told and to be retold and to be taught to the children as they understand it again. In Exodus, the meal itself was the teaching aid God gave the Israelites to teach the children what it means to be redeemed, that they, by the grace of God, the mercy of God, have been spared, whereas the Egyptians weren't. Well, what we must do is retell the story, reteach the story, tell it again and again. What we must not do is fail to retell the story. We have to tell it again. To tell and to keep telling one another how wonderful it is, by God's grace, to be spared. Because though we are spared, others haven't been. And what we must do is to teach ourselves and our children again and again of the wonderful means that God provided for that redemption to come about. The precious, precious blood of the Passover lamb in whom we find complete shelter from judgment. Father in heaven, thank you that we can remember this story. It's been recorded for us again so that we can appreciate Jesus and the redemption that comes through him, the great Passover lamb, once for all, who offered his sacrifice to bring us to you, to rescue and redeem us from slavery to sin and death and judgment. Father, may we grow in appreciation of him and love for you and hold dearly what a wonderful thing it is to be one of your redeemed people. And if, this is, if we're not sure about this in ourselves, please may we identify, give us grace and strength to identify with Christ whose blood was shed for us and as it were to put it on the door frame of our life.